Now, tomorrow is the 1st of March. Uh, spring is just around the corner. And here is a picture of some uh, snowdrops and crocuses from our garden. And look good in the sunshine. Don't look at the weeds or the grass, just look at the flowers. <laughs> and here are some uh, tulips in another photograph of this coming up just now in a container. And uh, I just hope these tulips won't regret poking their heads above the ground this early because it was frosty here this morning, although it is uh, nice and beautiful and sunny uh, with it. Bulbs, of course, are pretty hardy, aren't they? They're a pretty safe bet for a, a novice, even a dangerous gardener like me. But whether it's hardy bulbs or delicate annuals, all gardeners, all good gardeners, want to see and encourage healthy growth. And a good gardener will also want to help the plants cope with weather conditions, especially the extremes of hot and cold or with strong winds. Very often tall flowers and spindly bushes will need to be tied to a support or to a stake in the ground to keep them from being flattened in a gale. Now in the same way, a church plant, a church plant, needs two things. It needs to be, first of all, nurtured and encouraged to grow up into maturity. The gardener, the church planter, will want to see and encourage healthy growth into Christian maturity. But then secondly, it will also need to be strengthened to cope with hostile weather conditions, to withstand the storms of persecution and the, the buffeting of suffering that come because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is Paul's concern as he writes this letter to the church plant in Thessalonica. Paul, Silas and Timothy had sown the seed of the gospel and immediately the seed had germinated. People had been converted. They had turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. Chapter 1 verse 9. And now Paul is writing from Corinth. He's heard reports now come back to him from Timothy. But he writes to them wanting to encourage this young church, this church plant, towards healthy growth and maturity. And he wants to strengthen them against the strong winds of opposition that they are already facing. So in this part of his letter from uh, verse 13 to 16 of chapter 2, he points them and us to three things. Three things that will help them achieve those two goals of encouraging healthy growth and withstanding, standing firm in the face in the winds of persecution. And these three things are really three realities of what I might call ordinary Christian experience, normal Christian life. And therefore these three things apply to us here and now as well. The first one is in verse 13. We see the word of God at work in them. The word of God at work in them. And then secondly, in verse 14 to 16, we see the world at work against them. The world at work against them. And then thirdly, we see that God always has the last word. God always has the last word. Now, those first two headings are borrowed from Angus MacLeay, who's written a, a book on First Thessalonians. The word of God at work in them, verse 13, and then the world at work against them, 
verse 14 to 16, and then right at the end, very briefly, God always has the last word. Firstly then, the word of God in them. Heinrich uh, Bullinger was an important figure in the 16th century Reformation. Here's a photograph of him. He's not as well known as Martin Luther or John Calvin or Knox, but he had a significant ministry in Zurich, Switzerland. And you can see Zurich there in the photograph. And the building with the two towers is the church that he was minister in, the Grossmünster, the big minster, as it were, the Grossmünster in Zurich. And Heinrich Bullinger came after Swingley. You might have heard of Huldrych Swingley, these great names from the 16th century. He was Swingley's successor in the Grossmünster in Zurich. Now, Bullinger, Heinrich Bullinger, whose picture you can see there, wrote what is now known as the Second Helvetic Confession. The Second Helvetic Confession. Now, Helvetic comes from the Latin word for Switzerland. Uh, the Latin word for Switzerland is Helvetia. He wrote, actually, he wrote it for himself. He didn't write it to be published widely or dis distributed. He, he wrote it for himself. Uh, he was going to be buried with it as a kind of testimony to his faith uh, because that's what the confession is. When we use the word confession in this way, it means a, a, a summary of Christian teaching. It's not saying, oh, I've done something wrong, I'm confessing it. No, we're confessing our faith in Christ. And the second, became known as the Second Helvetic Confession, was the first internationally recognized Reformed Confession. It was written almost a hundred years before the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it was accepted by the Reformed Church of Scotland in 1566. Now, the first chapter of this confession, this summary of Christian teaching or doctrine, is called of the Holy Scripture being the true word of God. And Bullinger writes in the first chapter that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the true word of God and that they have sufficient authority of themselves, not of men. For God himself spoke and still speaks to us through the Holy Scriptures. But then later on in this first chapter, there is this remarkable statement where he says that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, I wonder what you, what you make of that. It's a startling claim, isn't it? Is Bullinger saying that preachers are infallible, divine in some way? No, Bullinger is not saying that. In fact, he makes that clear in the context and later on. But I think the Apostle Paul would have agreed with his statement that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Not because Paul was an apostle, not because Paul thought he was infallible, not because he never made a mistake, but because in proclaiming the Word of God, the voice of God is heard. In proclaiming the Word of God, the voice of God himself is heard. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 4, you will see that Paul has already said that we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We speak as those approved by God 
to be entrusted with the gospel. In other words, God has entrusted, he has handed over something to them, to Paul and Silas and Timothy, which Paul must now pass on to others. When I forwarded Jane's message to the children earlier, the communication came from me. I was the messenger. But the message came from Jane. Though, though I passed it on, it was still the word of Jane, not the word of James. And likewise, when Paul passed on the word of God and his preaching, it is the word of God that the Thessalonians received. So then we look at verse 13 and we read, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, as it truly is, the word of God. Now, it's an amazing truth when we stop to think about it. God himself addresses us and speaks to us through his word. Even when that word is clothed with human speech and human personality and passed on, yes, by flawed and sinful human preachers and teachers. But there are three things that flow from that, three applications, if you like. Firstly, those of us who preach and teach God's word, and I include Sunday school teachers, Bible explorer leaders, Hick youth leaders, anyone who handles God's word must handle the word of God correctly so that we can pass it on faithfully. Isn't that what Paul writes many years later to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15? Do, do your best to present yourself to God as, as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed but who handles correctly the word of truth. So that's the first thing. If this is God's word, those of us who handle it must learn to handle it correctly so we can pass it on faithfully. Secondly, those of us who come to worship God should come expecting to hear from God as the word of God is preached. Not to hear from me, even though I am speaking, but to hear from God. And then thirdly, in the light of those first two points, the third point is this, that all of us need to pray. We need to pray for the preacher and teacher of God's word so that we handle the word of God correctly. And then we need to pray for ourselves that we would come expecting to hear the voice of God, speaking the word of God through the messenger of God. When Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica, the, the, the word of God was like a seed that they, that they, that they sowed. Isn't that what Jesus says in the parable of the soils and the sower? The seed is the word of God. And this seed of the word of the God is the seed that the Holy Spirit took. Yes, Paul scattered it, if you like, but the Holy Spirit took it and planted it in the soil, the good soil of those loved by God and chosen by God to be the church of God. And notice at the end of verse 13 that this seed is still doing its work in those who believe. Paul doesn't say, you accepted the word of God which was at work in you who believe. No, he says, which is at work in you who believe. 
the word of God that calls us to faith in Christ, is the same word that works in us to make us grow up in Christ. It's a bit like the seed and the bulb. You know that the, um, the first days of a plant's growth, where does it get its energy? It gets it from the bulb or the seed itself, from the, the food store, from the starch that's stored up in the seed or the bulb. Now, it's true that after a while, the plant will get energy from sunlight. But what is true of the early days of any plant is true for the whole of our lives as Christians. That the seed of the word of God that brings us life in Christ is the same word, the same store, the same source that we need to sustain our life in Christ. And that raises the question. What are you and I doing to make sure that we are hearing God's word so that it does its work in us? What opportunities am I taking or missing to hear God speaking? Is the word of God still doing its work in you and in me? Or is his voice drowned out by the clamor of other voices? God is speaking. Are we listening? Paul was thankful because he knew that the word of God was at work in the lives of those Thessalonians who had believed, who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. How did he know? Well, verse 14 tells us. Verse 14 tells us. He knew because the world was at work against them. That's our second heading. The first heading was the word at work in them. And then secondly, the world at work against them. How did Paul know that God's work, sorry, God's word was at work in them? He knows because of their willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Verse 14 and 15, for you brothers and sisters became imitators of the churches of God. God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. Just as Jesus had said in Matthew 23, pursue them from town to town. That's what happened to Paul, Silas and Timothy. Now, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that the Thessalonians had imitated him and Silas and Timothy and imitated the Lord for they had welcomed they had welcomed the message the word in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit and here in chapter 2 Paul says they are imitating the churches in Judea that is in Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem and there are plenty of examples aren't there of the suffering of the early church and the acts of the apostles from the arrest of the apostles at the beginning of Acts 5 by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, to King Herod putting to death James, the brother of John. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he went on to arrest Peter. They are imitating these churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. I notice that these are God's churches. They are in Christ Jesus. And if we here today are like the churches in Judea and like the church in Thessalonica, if we are the church of God and if we are in Christ Jesus, then we should not be surprised when we face the same kind of opposition 
that Christ himself faced. Last week, you may remember from John 13, Jesus says a servant is not greater than his master. He, he said that in terms of instructing us to follow his example in, in service and foot-washing humility. Then later in John 15, verse 20, he says to his disciples, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now it's striking, isn't it? And if you want confirmation of this, go back and read Acts chapter 17, the first few verses. The Christians in Thessalonica or Thessalonica knew what it was to suffer from the very beginning. And that same hostile reality is the case for many, many people across the world. In countries like Iran and India and Pakistan and China and North Korea. And yes, as we are hearing earlier in Syria. To become a Christian in these situations brings with it suffering and opposition right from the start. And that means compared to us here in the West, they are at an, an advantage. Yep, you heard me correctly, an advantage. No, don't misunderstand me. I'm not making light of their suffering and pain. I'm not saying that their suffering and pain is a good thing. But what do I mean that they are at an advantage? Their advantage is this. Right from the start of their Christian lives, they know that the way of Christ is the way of the cross. It is the way of rejection. It is the way of weakness. It is the way of suffering and shame. And yet by the grace of God, they embrace the Son of God and his sufferings with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Just like was the case in Thessalonica. I mentioned to you earlier, we prayed for Susan and Kamishli in Syria. And um, let me just read a little bit of her story from the recent uh, edition of the Open Doors uh, magazine. In fact, it was Susan's brother who first became a Christian. And he shared the good news of Jesus with Susan and uh, their two sisters, Maria and Doa. And at first she dismissed it. But then she was persuaded to start reading the Bible and Suzanne says this, I read this verse in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus touched my heart with that verse. I saw there was no other solution for me than Jesus. The Holy Spirit started to work in me. And Suzanne and her two sisters, along with her brother previously, were converted and began to follow Christ. But what happened? Pretty much immediately, the folk in her community came to her father and told her father that he should kill them. That they had brought great shame on the Prophet Muhammad and on Islam by leaving Islam. Their cousins actually poisoned or attacked one of the sisters that she ended up in hospital and persuaded or tried to persuade one of the doctors in hospitals to poison uh, Suzanne's sister. The doctor agreed, but in the end didn't carry it out. 
And one remarkable story that she tells here is that, um, if I can find it here, that there was a group of men came to hurt uh, Suzanne and her sister Maria. They came to hurt them, to attack them, to persecute us. We were afraid. Both of us were crying. We were so afraid to be killed. But then Suzanne had some kind of vision of Jesus. He said, don't be afraid. And at that moment in time, the men who were about to attack them started to apologize and walked away. Started to apologize and walked away. And as Suzanne says, that can only be God's work. That can only be God's work. Let me show you her picture again. This is her on the front cover with the children that she helps. That's her in the back. She she doesn't look like a miserable Christian, does she? Despite all the suffering. She says this, There is no other saviour than Jesus. I went through a lot of difficulties, but I am in his hands. He helped me to pass through the problems. Jesus promises, I will be with you. Don't be afraid. I saw that there was no other solution for me than Jesus. He is the one who is the way, the truth and the life. I won't hide my faith. Why should I? Right from the start, Christians in other parts of the world know that to follow Christ is to take up your cross daily and follow him. Now, we in the West, we are not used to that. We have grown up in a society that until recently was shaped by a broad acceptance of Christian principles and Christian practice. But no longer, no longer, we are increasingly strangers in a strange land. And many of us are finding it hard Hard to adjust to a society where the rules have changed. A society where we may well be suspended or lose our jobs if we say the wrong thing. Even if it is the right thing and the true thing. And I have to ask you as I ask myself, are you and I ready to face that, to be disciplined, to be attacked, to be even sacked? For the sake of the name of Jesus. Are we ready even to go to prison? Brothers and sisters, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to experience what is a normal Christian experience for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Well, in Thessalonica... It seems that their own people, their countrymen, were following the example of the Jews in Judea who had attacked the churches of God in Christ in Judea. These Jews who had attacked the prophets, remember Jesus had said that, uh, killed the Lord Jesus and driven Paul and co out of Thessalonica. Now, if you read this, you might think as Paul being anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. No, he's not being anti-Semitic and these verses should not be used uh, for the, 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 the horror and the sin of anti-Semitism. Remember that Paul is a Jew. He is a Jewish believer himself. 
And if you want to know how much Paul cared for his fellow Jews, you can later look at Romans 9, verse 1 to 3, and Romans 10, verse 1, where Paul says, I wish that I were accursed and cut off myself for the sake of the salvation of my fellow Jews. But the truth is, pretty much everywhere where Paul went, yes, there were some Jews who believed. He would go to the synagogue first, And there would be some Jews who believed, as there were in Thessalonica. But most of the Jewish community became angry, in particular the Jewish leaders, the religious teachers. And they rejected God's messengers because they rejected God's message. And what was God's message? God's message was that Jesus is God's Messiah. Their Messiah. And that is the tragedy of the Jewish people. The Messiah who would long to gather them as a hen would gather chicks under her wings. But they were not willing. And if you read at the end of verse 15, to reject God's Messiah, to reject Jesus Christ and those who preach Jesus Christ. To reject the word of God and those who preach the word of God, Christ, the word made flesh. That displeases God. That displeases God. Just as stopping others from hearing the good news of Christ is an act of deep hostility towards them. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. You know, it's true, isn't it, that unbelievers um, and famous atheists like Richard Dawkins, they think they are doing someone a favor when they stop them from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what they are committing is a crime against humanity. A crime against humanity. And God will punish those that commit that crime accordingly. There is a passage in Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress in the second part when Christian's wife, Christiana, is coming along the way with mercy, Christiana and mercy, and they come across three men hanging by the side of the road. And they ask, I think it is Mr. Greatheart, who are these three men? And these three men were men who tried to stop people from following the way. Yes, it's true, of course, and we take comfort and rejoice in the fact that the sovereign electing grace of God cannot be defeated. Chapter 1, verse 4. You cannot ultimately defeat God's purposes and someone who's been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. But that does not excuse anyone, Jew or Gentile, from trying to stop people from hearing the good news of Jesus. And the enemies of the gospel who displease God by trying to stop the advance of the gospel are simply piling up their sins to the limit. And their outlook is bleak. It is nothing less than the wrath of God which Paul says has come upon them at last, or come upon them fully. Now, this is a difficult verse to understand. Paul speaks in the past tense. But it's possible he's using the past in a prophetic sense. You know, in the way that Jesus in Matthew 23 says, Look, your house is left to you desolate, when it hasn't yet, the temple hasn't yet been destroyed. 
Paul may be using the prophetic past as Isaiah does in Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. When he's talking about something that's still to happen 700 years in the future. But it's so certain that he speaks of it as if it has already happened. There are other interpretations of this verse. I don't have time to go into them all today. But the point is that it is a dreadful thing. Hear the voice of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you are a child of wrath, if you have not yet taken shelter in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have not run to Christ himself for refuge, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not my word. That is God's word. That's Hebrews 10 verse 31. You know, the wrath of God, it actually mentions it quite a lot in First Thessalonians. It's meant to be a great comfort to persecuted Christians everywhere. And it is a comfort to persecuted Christians everywhere. But it's also a sober warning for those still under his wrath. But you know, God in his mercy has come to us and spoken to us. I wonder, did you pick up in Matthew 23, in that long list of woes and condemnation from Jesus, you know, how will you escape hell? And he says, therefore I will send to you prophets and sages. Was that not a mercy? Oh yes, Jesus went on to say that they would reject them and chase them from town to town like they did with Paul. But don't you see? That even when Jesus was pronouncing his woes, he was saying, I'm going to still send you people to speak God's word to you so that you may turn from your sins and repent and be saved. Because God, who will judge the impenitent, those who refuse to repent, who will come in wrath against those who are outside of saving grace in Christ... He has come in his mercy and has spoken to us and still speaks to us in Jesus Christ. And remember, it was the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ himself who came to Paul, the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus and spoke to him, addressed him directly, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the Lord Jesus Christ took a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of Christ himself, and turned him into a preacher of Christ and a sufferer for the sake of Christ. That is the power of the gospel, the power of the word of God in Jesus Christ. He took a persecutor and made him a a persecutor of the church and made him a planter of churches. Someone who would take the seed of the word of God to others, the good news of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Showing us the love of God even as he took upon himself the wrath of God. That we might hear the voice of God speaking to us. I love you so much. I love you so much that I gave my only son for you. So that if you believe in him, if you only believe in him, you will not perish. But have everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks to us through your word. A word that reveals the word incarnate. That fullest and final word that you have spoken to us as humanity. Dressed in humanity. Come to rescue us, to save us, to give us life in all its fullness. Father, we pray that your word would do its work in us. To call those of us to faith in Christ who have never yet experienced that newness of life in Christ. May there be those like Suzanne and Syria who come to new life in Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ as the church of God, may we, Father, not shrink from the, the suffering that the gospel of Christ, that the word of truth brings in a society that turns its back on you and your word. Strengthen us, just like Moses who persevered because he saw him who is invisible, who regarded disgrace for the sake of the name of Christ, nothing compared as nothing compared to the reward that was ahead of him. Oh, he, he embraced that, Father, that reproach of Christ rather than the treasures of this world. So help us, Father, to help us to fix our eyes on Christ, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and has now sat down at the right hand of your majesty. Father, help us to fix our eyes on him so that we too will persevere and keep going to your praise and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.